powerful morning, and we're delighted that you're here this morning. Uh, uh, we've been in this series, uh, What If Upside Down is the Right Way Up? And we've been unpacking the kingdom of God. And as I end this series today, I want to make sure that we know why we've been taking the time to talk about this topic and make a big deal of it, and we'll continue to make a big deal of it in the many months ahead in this time of transition. Uh, I remember when I was in school, uh, the professor that I sat under always stressed, when it comes to an exam, take your time, Gilbert, and take your time to read the questions slowly, carefully, because I don't want you writing for three hours answering the question that we didn't ask. Make sure you know you're answering the right question. Uh, a true story about an examination uh, taking place at the University of S Southern California. Uh, a football player was sitting in a final exam next to this A student. And the footballer hadn't scored great grades up to this point in his college career. And this A student and him in this final exam both get high scores. Like 50 questions and you only miss one. So, you know, 98%. Well, the professor thinks that this is rather, rather suspicious, so he pulls the footballer into the office. He shows him the paper of the A student and shows him his paper. And the professor says, you guys both got the same exact score. Is this not slightly suspicious? And the football player says, well, probably just a coincidence. And the professor says, but you both missed the same question, number 18. And the footballer sticks to his original answer, probably just a coincidence. But the professor says, the A student's paper in question number 18 says, I don't know. And yours reads, I don't know either. <laughs> Let's... Let's take a close look at what Jesus himself said, what he went about saying, so that we know why we're making the point we're trying to make. And these scriptures will be on the screens, and we're going to quickly run through them. The first one is in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We've quoted this before. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God. God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Notice what Scripture says. The good news of God, the gospel, what Jesus is about is that the time has come. The kingdom of God is near, or the better translation is, has come. Repent and believe the gospel. Listen into what the scriptures elsewhere teach. Finish it off if you want to. Uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to the other, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Or Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus called the twelve. He gave them power, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. Or Matthew chapter 4, verse 28, uh, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of 
the kingdom of God. Or Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. What did Jesus go around telling people about? The kingdom of God. Listen into the book of Acts, the first thing that Jesus spoke with His disciples after He appeared to them from the dead. Acts 1 verse 3, He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and He spoke about the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul is in the synagogues. Acts chapter 19 verse 8, he is arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Paul is speaking his last words in Acts 28 verse 31, and he's boldly preaching about the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. What if upside down is the right way up. This morning, let's finish this series off by looking at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And I know it's more the Christmas passage, but if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. A, a, a pastor that I sat under for a couple of years, he puts it this way, and I really couldn't say any better. One day in Rome sat the most powerful man in the entire world. And the world has never seen anything like it. And even to this day, it has not been repeated. It stretched north all the way to England. Only the Scots held it back. The Roman Empire was scared of us fearsome people that wore skirts, okay? It stretched south all the way to Africa. It stretched east all the way to Asia. He literally ruled the known world. Everybody, rulers, business leaders, politicians, sports stars, they all bowed down to him. He was the most powerful man that ever lived. And he was devoted to deepening his power. His army was so strong that it was unchallenged. The world was living in the midst of what was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, peace that came only through the violence of the Roman Empire. Not that everybody wanted to be ruled by Rome, but his army was so strong, nobody could challenge it. No one was a threat to it. He alone wore the crown. He was the king of kings. It was his kingdom. And he was called... Caesar Augustus. We still talk about an august person, someone whose status is majestic, imposing. By the end of this man's life, people worshipped him. He was viewed as a god, and people literally bowed down either to him or to effigies of him. You ever, had, you ever had that happen to you? You ever go into work or go to your desk and your co-workers bow down, not worthy, not worthy? <laughs> ever walk into school campus and your fellow students line the corridors and sing two verses of how great thou art? <laughs> Everywhere Augustus looked, all he saw was his kingdom, a brutal kingdom, a bloody kingdom. But he ruled and he reigned 
and it was impressive. Caesar Augustus was about 60 years old, and something inside of him was still not content. So, he decided that he wanted everyone to know how powerful and how imposing his kingdom and his rule was. So, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1, it came to pass that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. On a bleak, boring afternoon in Rome, no gladiators to cheer, his football team was not doing very well. He spoke just a word, and everybody in his entire kingdom traveled miles and miles and miles to register in the town that they were born, each to his own village to register, as Luke chapter 2 verse 3 says, to obey the word of this king, Caesar Augustus. Man, did he have power. Can you picture the scene? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people scurrying across the landscape, obeying just a word spoken by a bored and a proud Caesar, wanting to massage his ego and wanting more taxes to enable him to extend his power and to extend his glory. But watch what happens. Tom Wright, New Testament scholar, puts it this way, this man, this king, this absolute monarch, he lifts his finger in Rome, and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertake the hazardous journey all at the whim of a king, only notice the result a child was born in an obscure little town that Caesar never heard of, but was just happened to be mentioned in an announcement Hebrew prophecy about the coming of a Messiah. Caesar lifts a finger and says a single word, and a little baby named Jesus is born in a little town called Bethlehem. So, here's the question. It's a defining question. What king is at work here, really? Whose will is actually being done? You see, the story of this world and everyone in it is the story of two kings and two kingdoms. But sometimes we don't see it this way. Dallas Willard, remember this definition that we gave way back in September the 2nd? A kingdom is any realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. The range of our effective will, that sphere where what we say goes. The first kind of kingdom is a Rome-type kingdom. All around us, we see people in an insane scramble trying to build their own little Romes. I mean, think of the political sphere, the political arena. 
And whilst there are some honorable servants, most are trying to build their own roams, extend their kingdoms, that what they say will go. Or on a global scale, Kim Jong-un of North Korea wants to stay king of his kingdom. Or President Maduro wants to keep his will being done in Venezuela while his people starve. Or in Damascus, the Syrian president, Bashir Assad, wants to stay holding his power. In Turkey, President Erdogan is working to secure his kingdom and do so by suppressing opposition, closing universities, firing civil servants, and the poverty rate rises to over 24%. But let's be clear. It's not just Kim Jong-un or Bashar al-Assad. It's us and our little kingdoms. I mean, how many managers and employers rule and reign in their little kingdom, and every day their word is law, their will is supreme, and they rule and they reign? Or how many husbands in their marriages? And it's your kingdom, and it's your will, and it's your way. Or how many bullies in the school or the college or the neighborhood and they rule over the others in the community as bullies and as dictators? Or how many mothers fear that mother and how she rules everything in the school or in the sports? And as for mother-in-laws, <laughs> Augustus had his killed. <laughs> we human beings, we have a kingdom problem. We all do. I want my life to be about me and my little kingdom, my comfort, my success, my achievement, my opportunities, my security. I want my life to be about my agenda. I, wa I want my life to serve me. I want to be in charge. I want my church to be about my agenda. I want to be in charge. I want it to be about me. Some people are real obvious about this, and some are very subtle. But it's all of us. We all have a kingdom problem. Even in something as trivial as our vehicle space. When our two boys were younger, and we used to do a lot of traveling in our minivan. <laughs> yeah, I had a minivan. <laughs> they were great travelers. I mean, we traveled thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. But they were great travelers until one of them decides to expand his kingdom into the other kingdom. They each had their space. Daniel always on the same seat. And should Luke encroach and try to invade his kingdom without invitation, war broke out. Of course, at that point, dad gets involved because he thinks that the whole car is his kingdom. And driving down the highway, you know, their mom's asleep and it's left to me. So, what does dad do as he drives the van and they're behind him in kingdom fighting? Do you want me to come back there? But the boys know at 70 miles an hour in the outside lane, that's not going to happen. So, dad, as he cannot go back there personally, sends an envoy, the hand. Now, what do the boys do when Mr. Hand comes back? 
They each retreat into the farthest corners of their kingdoms where Mr. Hand cannot reach them. Ken Davis, Christian guy, gives some advice for how to get the two boys out of the unreachable safety zone. A tap on the brakes? <laughs> Thy kingdom come, you know? But this is the truth about us. We all have our kingdoms. But this world is the story of two cities, of two kings, of two kingdoms. There is Rome, center of power, of politics. And there is Bethlehem, a stable. Let me tell you this morning, which kingdom is more real? Listen to how the Lord's prayer ends, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Perhaps in your translation of the Bible, this, this part is just a footnote. Uh, this is because this ending is not actually in the original earliest manuscripts, uh, but most Jewish prayers would end with a doxology, and so from very early on within the first century of the early church, this ending was accepted as part of the Lord's Prayer. So, Matthew's Gospel 6 verse 13, it's the end of the Lord's Prayer, you know, uh, our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you might call this a doxology. It's a line of praise, a, a line of worship to God. But when you read it carefully and think about what you're praising God for, I think this is really an act of surrender. Listen to what Jesus invites us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, ha, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we ask for all of that, this closing phrase is our hearts, our souls, our minds, our wills surrendering to God's kingdom coming. There are two cities. You can build your Rome or you can travel to Bethlehem. There are two kings, Caesar, the ruler in his palace, or Jesus, the Messiah in a barn. There are two kingdoms, our kingdom or His kingdom. This world's story, your world's story, is always, always about these two cities, these two kings, these two kingdoms, always. Whatever your story is, wherever it is on the story, it is always about these two cities, these two kings, these two kingdoms. One is far more visible. Wall Street, Hollywood, Fifth Avenue, Times Square, the Colosseum. It's about fame and power and wealth and popularity and status and success. The other one may not always be particularly visible, but this other kingdom is constantly at work in our world. It may not look real impressive. Its beauty is a different kind of beauty. It is subversive in its influence, and it's normally contrarian in its values. It attracts the meek and the humble and the lowly and the despised and the forgotten and the people who lives bad, spell bad news. It's not filled with people of importance or status and title. 
but just ordinary people. It's among, it's, it's, it's among the poor more than it is among the rich. It's among the diseased and the broken. It's among the left outs and the forgottens. Caesar Augustus, ruling in his palace with a mighty army, with people bowing down to him, with the lifting of a finger, millions hurry to do what he wants done. That epitomizes the one kingdom, Jesus Christ in a stable with a teenage boy and a trembling father in an obscure, unheard, small town inaugurated the other. One will last and one will always fall. And just so you know, I don't see many churches filled with people worshiping Caesar Augustus. But I do see millions and millions of people in every corner of our planet, in every language, from every tribe and every tongue, declaring their worship to Jesus Christ and restoring their lives to His will. So let me ask you, will you use those words today in surrender? Because you cannot serve two kings. You cannot live in two cities. And you cannot be loyal to two kingdoms. Who is really on the throne of your life? Really? Are you willing to pray these words and say, God, I'm going to give up the folly of arranging my life around the pursuit of my agenda, and I'll repent, and I'll surrender to your kingdom. That is a scary prayer to pray. And just to help us, the ending of this prayer speaks some powerful words. Yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power. This kingdom that Christ is inviting you to surrender to has unyielding power. Uh, it has a power to change the human heart. Change mine. It has a power to turn a God-rejecter into a Christ-embracer. Been there, had that done to me. It has a power to take the darkest, dirtiest, worst secret of your soul and your past and to cleanse it and make it white like snow. Been there, had that done. It has the power to take the worst that Rome can throw at us and stay true and loyal to God's will. Been there. It has the power to look death in the face and say, you do not have the last word on my life. It has the power to restore broken relationships, to turn enemies into friends. It has the power to give hope to the hopeless, no matter what your hopelessness may feel like. This power is available to us. We can ask Him for it. It's His kingdom, and it has the power. 
And sometimes we say these words, but we have a hard time believing that God will actually give us the power. Uh, let me show you this in the Bible, okay? If you want to go and look at this here, Acts chapter 12 is a fascinating little story, okay? I'm going to tell you the story. It's a tale of two cities and two kings. And in Acts chapter 12, Peter the apostle was in trouble for being a Christ follower, imprisoned be, 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 between two soldiers bound with chains, Acts, Acts 12 verse 6. Uh, and the church, Acts chapter 12 verse 5, were earnestly praying to God for somehow Peter to be released and uh, show your power. They were crying out in their prayer meetings. Boom! And an angel came, it says in Acts 12, and touched Peter. Like, you remember the old TV stories, touched by an angel? This was whacked by an angel, okay? And a high testosterone angel. And so Peter, Peter in Acts chapter 12 gets dressed and they leave the prison. They walk past the guards, the iron gates open for them. And Peter thinks he's dreaming. He's not thinking God's power is at work. Peter thinks he's in a trance. And verse 11, he comes to himself like he wakes up out of his dream. And it's not a dream. And he decides he needs to get off the street. Herod's secret police are after him for this one. So he comes to the house where the church are gathering for prayer. And he knocks the door. Get the picture here. Get the picture. Peter is a fugitive being hunted by the police for escaping prison. He needs off the street and he's there shouting through the door, open up, let me in, open up, let me in. And Rhoda, she comes to answer the door. And she's part of the church and she hears it's Peter. And you think she might have quickly opened it and let, let men off the streets, but, but she's so excited, she leaves him standing outside and tells the guys praying that Peter's at the door. That's Rhoda. Her name actually comes from Rudos, which is the Greek word for blonde. <laughs> I'm just jealous. But here's the weird thing. This is the weird thing. Peter wasn't believing that an angel from God was bringing God's power to help him escape. And the Christians praying for his escape, didn't believe God's power had worked either. When Rhoda tells them that Peter's at the door, they say, don't be silly. We're in the middle of praying hard to God to get him out of prison. <laughs> and verse 16, when they saw him, they were astonished. But you know, when you think about it, I have the same problem. I live as if I'm restricted to my own little power. And this is embarrassing to me because I'm a follower of this Christ. I carry burdens in my own power. I try to solve problems in my own power. I try to live my life in my own power. And yet all of God's power is but a surrender away. And there's a story of a Midwest town. And if you're from the Midwest, you'll appreciate this. And the Midwest town had a church and had a brewery. And the brewery was owned by an atheist. And so the church began to pray for the brewery to close. But it didn't. And one night a storm blew through town. And the storm destroyed the brewery. And the owner of the brewery, the atheist, filed a claim with his insurance company, but they declined to pay it as this was classed as an act of God. 
And the owner, the atheist, found out that the Christians had been praying for his brewery to, to close. So, he filed a lawsuit against the church for plotting with God to destroy his business. And then here's where it gets weird. The church hired an attorney to defend the claim. You get it. Nobody else gets it. The day of court, the judge stands, starts by saying this was the darnest case he'd ever heard. On one side was an atheist who believed in God, and on the other side was a church who did not believe in God. <laughs> but how often is my life like that? That I say I believe in the one whose kingdom has come and whose kingdom will never cease but I don't act like that. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. He, Jesus, is the famous one. He's the one receiving all the honor. He's the one to be praised. But I lift up my abilities, what I've succeeded to do, what I've built in my business, what I've produced, what I've provided for my family. I've gone to college. I've got degrees. My opinion is sought. My name is spoken with respect. People know me. No, no, no. His glory. Then watch this. Forever and ever. Amen. And this is when it sinks in. Hundreds Thousands and millions of people have lost sight of the true reality of their little kingdoms. They will all end. And they will end six feet under with a cold slab on top and even the praising inscription that will glorify their rule and reign within 50, 80, 100 years will be unreadable and forgotten. And all you might be remembered by is the name of a salad. And let's not push this out to the millions and the millions, even the thousands and the thousands. Let's just bring it to your neighbor or to your colleague or to your family member or to your friend or perhaps to your spouse or your teenage kid or your college-age kid. Are they investing their lives into a kingdom that will crumble at a moment's notice? The changing stock market, a new competitor emerges, a double-dip recession, jobs transfer to China, a shadow that shows up on a scan, or it will fall when they die. And you as a parent, and you as a friend, and you as a neighbor, are you encouraging them that route? or to go the way of another king. There is a kingdom and a king and a king's followers who will live forever. And no storm and no changing forces and no rolling tides, nothing will stop it. Hebrews 12 calls it a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it has always been. From the coming of the king through the generations of that king's followers, they have worked tirelessly and constantly and passionately and boldly to tell people of the good news of this kingdom and urge them to repent of building their rooms and enter the kingdom of God. So here's my question. What story 
is your life a part of? We live our lives moving for the kingdom of this world. We give it our best years. We give it our best talents. We give it our time, our money, our hopes, our lives, because it demands it. It forces it. It sucks it out of us. But in this kingdom, we will lose always. But there is a better story. You can move from something that matters and that will not pass away. A kingdom that in Jesus Christ has now come. A kingdom of repair and restoration. A kingdom where everyone is welcome. A kingdom where no one loses. Will you march to the beat of that king and his kingdom? Will this church march to the beat of that king and his kingdom? Will you live that kingdom out in being agents of repair, helping the poor, caring for those whose lives are wild and waste? Will you invite others to know it and to explore it and to find it? We made it so big you couldn't stick it on your fridge because it's not for you to remember to come. It's for you to invite others to come. Or do you just march to the beat of your own drum? And oh, candlelight, I love it, it's just for me. And you've missed the fact that the king is calling us to march to the beat of a different drum. That is not about us. It's always about Let's stand for closing prayer, and I'll see you again in two weeks when we start the Christmas series and I get the joy of preaching all four, so my joy, maybe not yours. <laughs> Let's pray. And we take, Lord, just a step of surrender this morning. so many thoughts, God, about how we pursue our own kingdoms. And we sometimes cloak it even in righteous language. But what could happen if we as individuals and we as a church were all about your kingdom and we gave to you all the glory and all the praise and all the worship in these next many weeks of Thanksgiving and Advent, may something change in our souls that moves us from being about our kingdoms to being all about yours. For some, Lord, they need to demonstrate that by getting baptized. November 24th, God, write that date on their hearts. Cause them to take that very visible stance for your kingdom. But what does it look for others of us in how we use our time and our money? What gets our priorities and our affections? Come and do a kingdom repair work in our hearts 
that the one who we confess to follow, may we truly be following him. In Christ's name, amen.